Hello and welcome to Silver Age Silver Screen, a podcast where we watch, discuss, and review sci-fi, cult, superhero, and other stereotypically geeky films. I'm your co-host, Casey Jarms. And I'm your other co-host, Riley Thorpe. A few months ago, we did a pair of episodes where we pitched how we personally would make a Suicide Squad or Thunderbolts type movie. Check those out. Give us the views. Episodes six and eight. Yeah, we don't get anything from the views. It's just we want, we need the views. Watch them, watch all our episodes. But anyway, we're doing that again. Except for this time, we're not doing superhero movies. We're doing Star Wars this episode. Yeah. And not like, I don't know about you, I think we've talked very little about our pitches to avoid spoiling each other, but these would be spinoffs. Like, we aren't, this is my new Star Wars sequel where Palpatine backs and also it retcons all the things I didn't like in the last movie and also it's kind of not good. Right, exactly. The prompt for this episode is Casey and I, we just took a week, separated ourselves from each other, didn't tell each other what our ideas are. The prompt is what we would do individually if we had the choice to do any Star Wars movie. What would we do? What would? What is the story we would come up with? What is that? the story that we would tell? That's the prompt of this episode, and this will be the first time that Casey and I are hearing each other's pitches, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I was very happy with how the last few pitches turned out. I really liked your DC one with the rogues going up against who, uh, I'm not going to spoil the episode, but you should check it out. <laughs> you should check that out. Yeah. And uh, yeah, your Marvel one was also pretty good. It fits super well into the MCU. I'm really looking forward to hearing your idea for the Star Wars movie that we're going to pitch. You say that, but I don't know if you'll enjoy You'll see. I feel your joy will leave your face eventually. Oh yeah? Try me. Try me, man. Yeah. Okay, a few things just to note before we get into this. I agreed to go first. Number one, this is a very rough pitch. I finished it two hours before recording this because I procrastinate. Number two, I'm not a big Star Wars guy. I I mean, I've watched the films, I've watched The Mandalorian, I've watched parts of The Clone Wars, but I don't have the encyclopedic EU knowledge that a lot of people have, so... There might be small inconsistencies with established canon. Uh, Just try and brush those off. Um, Also, I'd like to point out something interesting that they've been doing recently in Star Wars canon is reintroducing stuff from the old EU. Like, they got rid of the original EU when Disney bought Lucasfilms, and honestly, I think that's probably for the best. More about this in my 10-part video essay that I will be uploading soon. That's a joke. But they have been starting to reintroduce parts of the old canon. For instance, Thrawn has been back for a few years now. And that idea of reintroducing an old piece of canon was kind of inspirational for this pitch. Okay, cool. Um, Also, Riley, you don't have this in front of you literally, but I want you to imagine there's a buzzer in front of you. All right. And I want you to hit it when you realize the stupid thing I'm doing, okay? Just say ding, ding, ding or whatever. Okay, you got it. So let's get into my Star Wars movie that I would make. The film's going to take place in the late days of the Clone Wars. I know Clone Wars have been done to death, but Star Wars introduced a bunch of cool space wizard swordsmen and then killed all of them and then had them come back and then killed all of them again. I wanted a Jedi, so we're going into Clone Wars. 
Our film opens on a young Jedi Padawan sitting alone in the courtyard of the Jedi Temple at the base of a tree meditating. He talks to himself. What is the Force? The Force is power, but it is not a weapon. It is a Jedi's greatest ally, but it is not a tool. The Force is nothing, and it is everything. The Force binds and connects all living things. The Force is life. And the camera pans over to show that there's a large crate, like 10 feet away from him. Slowly, he raises his hand, focusing on the crate, and the crate does not move at all. So he stands up and he walks over to the crate. He holds his hands out again. Crate still doesn't move. He gets real close, like inches away, focuses as hard as he can, and makes the crate move less than a foot away from him. So, Star Wars films always focus on these strong, powerful, godlike Jedi, like Anakin is the chosen one, Luke's his son, Rey's an awakening, Yoda's possibly the strongest Jedi ever, and that's cool, but it's been done. The Jedi Padawan that I'm focusing on in this pitch is the worst Jedi, the absolute most incompetent Jedi alive, <laughs> an absolute loser of a person. He fucking sucks. <laughs> His name is Burn Kazukusar, or Burn for short. He's an original character. I consider Gang an actual Jedi Padawan, but that just opens up a whole bunch of messing with canon issues. He's one of the Chiss, which are those human-looking aliens that have blue skin and red eyes like Admiral Thrawn's people. Yeah. This film. Clone Wars raging on. The Jedi are spread thin, which means that they give Burn a mission because literally every other Jedi is busy. If you'll remember, late in the Clone Wars, the Separatists invaded the Wookiee planet Kashyyyk. Burns' job is to protect a Wookiee senator named Hivso Kayadar as he travels back to Kashyyyk for classified reasons. Uh, on this mission, Burn is accompanied by four clone trippers, Sergeant Vim, Pilot Topper, Interpreter Gab, and Sniper Locke. Burn and the clones pick up Senator Hivso from the Senate building. Senator Hivso is this ugly old Wookiee with like graying fur and an overbite and he's like perpetually grumpy throughout the film. A lot of the film hinges on him not getting along with Burn at all. Everything Hivso says to Burn needs to be translated by Gab, the clone, who is not fluent in Shiriwook meaning that the gang just doesn't know half the things Hivso says. Uh, before they leave Coruscant, Hivso insists that Burn's squad take him to a seedy part of town so he can pick up a top-secret item necessary for the war effort. Bernie, Hivso, and a few of the clones go into the seedy trading post. Senator Hivso trades a massive bag full of credits for a sealed container about two foot by one foot in dimensions. Burn asks what it is, and Gab translates that the crate is a present for the senator's son. And Byrne is annoyed that they wasted time picking up something pointless. Hivso growls at him. As Byrne's squad and the senator are leaving the trading post, they hear gunshots coming from another part of the building. 
his soul bolts out the building, burning the clones chase after him. Whereas they get back to the ship, the trading post explodes. This big buff lady with four arms, all holding blasters, walks out of the rubble. Accompanying her are half a dozen red aliens with like rooster crowns. I don't know the scientific term for them, like those ridges that look like mohawks on their heads. Red bird aliens with those. And all these rooster aliens are carrying knives. The buff lady fires at the ship as the rooster alien somersault towards it. Bernie fights off a few of the knife dudes with his lightsaber and the ship takes off. As they're entering hyperspace, Hivso explains that the buff lady and the rooster aliens are assassins who want him dead. Suddenly, the ship slips out of hyperspace. Apparently, when the woman with four arms shot at it, she damaged part of the engine. The ship crash lands on this planet with green sky and a surface covered in this thick red mud. Immediately, the ship begins sinking. Burn, Hivso, and the clones try to climb up to the top of the ship. A massive tentacle breaks through the wall, grabs Locke, and drags him away, presumably killing him. Another tentacle breaks in, wrapping around Gab's head and trying to crush it. Burn slices through the tentacle and drags an unconscious Gab to the top of the ship. The gang fights against the tentacles from on top of the ship. Suddenly, the monster retreats as this orange Brontosaurus-esque alien approaches, wading through the mud. <laughs> the Brontosaurus lowers its head down and Burn's squad climbs aboard right as their ship slips below the mud. Ding, 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 ding. I, I, I think I know I think I know what you're going to get at. Um, keep going. If Can you, you... Keep going. <laughs> uh, okay, so that's what Riley has it. I will... There's a place where I just drop any pretense that this isn't what it is, and I will explain more when we get there. So Byrne and his squad climb down the dinosaur's neck, and they find an old Lawset man sitting on the saddle. The Lawset, by the way, are cat people. Uh, I haven't seen Rebels, but apparently the character Garazeb is one. I... I didn't want it to just be humans. There's way too many humans in Star Wars. Right. The old man introduces himself as Farend and asks them to give him the wounded man. Farend pulls off Gab's helmet to reveal a massive gash on the side of his head. Farend says that Gab will live, but he'll be unconscious for a few hours. As the crew rides on the back of the dinosaur, Ferend explains where they've crash-landed. They're on the planet Panna, an inhospitable world covered in quicksand. The planet's only people live in floating cities. There are few ships on Panna, and it's impossible to send a signal off-world because of interference from the planet's sun. Byrne asks why anyone would live in such a place, and Ferend explains that the planet's colonists are miners, digging up rare minerals used to make the circuit boards for droids. Because of this, Panna has been recently conquered by the Separatists. Side note, not related to my pitch, when I looked up Panna, because... You know, it's a planet that's appeared before in Star Wars. Uh, I think Riley knows where. Yep. <laughs> when I googled Panna, a bunch of four images came up. Oh boy. <laughs> I don't have any... F I, I figure... I eventually figured out why, but it took me like 20 minutes of just, Why is this giving me vor? <laughs> and I... You need to know that. The audience needs to know what I went through for this episode. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, here my question would theoretically be, why were you spending more than 20 minutes thinking about Vor? But you I do needed you. to know why. The reason <laughs> is because there's a drag, a very, very minor Dragon Ball character who only appears in the 3DS game Dragon Ball Fusions, whose name is Panna, who for some reason it's just the character pan but really fucking fat and the vor community loves that apparently makes sense yeah and that's why that came up but anyway back to the pitch burn asks who ferrand is and ferrand explains that he is a servant of ashla a powerful spirit that gives him glances of the future and the past it was ashla who guided him to the crash ship the gang spends a night on the back of the dinosaur. As he sleeps, Burn has flashbacks to when he was a child of him playing with his siblings. These flashbacks are cut short when the crew arrives at a barge city floating above the mud. Friend decides to accompany the group on their travels because he can sense that they'll face danger in their future. And he's this old monk dude. He's That's what old monk dudes do. The gang go to a bar, a real hive of scum and villainry type place, a la Mos Eisley Cantina, to see if they can charter a ship off-world. As they're talking to the bartender, an old lady named Akmina Zabornak, a hologram comes on in the middle of the room. The hologram is of a woman with purple hair wearing a white dress. She sings to the patrons of the bar and they are absolutely enraptured by her. Burn and the clones don't really care much, but Hivso, the old Wookiee man, is super into it. And the singer says, I am Mermaya. I am your fantasy. I am your experience. So experience me. I am your pleasure, so enjoy me. <laughs> this is our moment together in time, and we might turn this moment into an eternity. Riley, what is my pitch? Um, I'm starting to get some vibes from the Star Wars Holiday Special, to be perfectly honest with you. You're taking the planet from the animated section of the film, and the mm -hmm. character, the hologram that you were mentioning just now, is the porno. Uh, the, the, the grandpa watching the porno, the, 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 the woman is from the porno that the grandpa Itchy watches. Yeah. So, I'm starting to think that this is Itchy's origin, kinda? Uh, uh, you know, I'm kidding. Not <laughs> no. quite, but you aren't far off. It, I, this, I don't think it has any continuity with the actual Star Wars Holiday Special. But yeah, I decided to rewrite the Star Wars Holiday Special to be good. And I tried to fit okay. in every yeah. single dumb segment. Uh, there's a lot of subtle jokes that I didn't point out at the time. Like the fact that the middle name of our Jedi is Kazook. Right. The fact that the mercenary aliens chasing them are a four-armed buff lady <coughs> cooking show and a yeah, bunch of right. acrobats dressed in red with weird rooster crowns. Okay. <laughs> and the cantina and the cartoon. I'm trying to incorporate every dumb thing from the holiday special into a passable movie. Nice. Nice. And explain Itchy's origin, of course. No, I don't know if this guy is Itchy. Yeah. Uh, but maybe. Yeah, well, I don't know. Well, Actually, I mean, cause, no. Cause... He definitely is not. Right, because Itchy is Chewbacca's dad. And Chewbacca's like a full-grown adult, like over 100 years old by then. So he'd be really old. Actually, do you know where I came up with this idea? A few weeks ago, me and Riley were discussing what to do with our 
I guess this is a February episode, so, but the episodes we record in January. And so, okay, got to come up with a Star Wars pitch. Uh, let's see, I am editing our Christmas special where we did the Star Wars holiday special. You can go check that out. We went through it. You might as well. And partway through the episode, I'm like, you know, this plot, like, with Han and Chewie could work. Like, a sort of Star Wars planes, trains, and automobiles of Han and Chewbacca trying to get home for Life Day. Okay. So that's what this yeah. is. Awesome. Yeah, It's a that's Jedi cool. taking a Wookiee home for Life Day with every single segment of the holiday special incorporated. And I'll try to make it good. You know, earlier you were saying, oh, these are the Star Wars movies we would make. I wouldn't make this. This is not... This... Why would I make a movie that is just references to a really bad movie? I mean, I don't know. If you're trying to turn it good... Might as well. <laughs> I don't know, but hey, I applaud you, sir. You're stronger than most trying to make the holiday special good. Yeah. Yeah, I picked up on it a little bit. Like, the planet. Uh, obviously, I started laughing when you were talking about the hologram. And then I was just like, there's a lot of specific details of this that are kind of... I don't know, like, why am I having some deja vu here? And then it's like, oh, the holiday special. You're trying to remake it. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm liking this. Uh, do you have more? Oh, I have more. Okay. That's halfway through it. Truck ahead. After the performance, Akmena, B. Arthur's character from the holiday special, takes the gang into the back room. A hologram of Mermaya is waiting back there to talk to them. If so, gets... A little too close to her, and she slaps him, actually arming him, despite the fact that Mermaya is a hologram, which might be important. Mermaya tells them that it isn't often that Jedi and clone troopers come to Panna, and that the only way off-world is in a separatist ship. She tells them that she can help them steal one, but she wants them to take her with them. The group head towards the main mining facility on the floating cargo boat. As they travel, Mermaya talks to Byrne and has him explain the Jedi to her. He mentions the fact that the Jedi are taken from home when they're children and aren't allowed to have relationships out of fear of losing control of their emotions, and Byrne seems to be kind of upset about this. Suddenly, a spaceship flies down and fires on the group, one of their shots hitting Mermyra and knocking her off the ship into the mud where she drowns. Byrne deflects a few bolts back of the ship with his lightsaber. The ship opens its cargo doors and a few of the acrobat rooster aliens jump out, landing on the barge. They overpower Byrne. And right before the acrobats kill him, if so, opens the container. It releases a bunch of white light that covers the barge, knocking everyone but Ferrand and Hivso out. While he's unconscious, we get another flashback of Burns' youth. This time, showing the Jedi taking him and his family, telling him what a great honor it is, even though young Burn really doesn't want to go. When Burn awakens, the cargo barge is still heading towards the main mining station, and the clones are asleep. Burn asks Hivso what the container is, and Hivso says, because Wookiee. Right. <laughs> Friend says that it contains a great source of energy that knocks out humanoids that reminds him of the power of Ashla, which has been guiding him. Bern asks where the acrobats are, and Friend says that he threw them overboard. Bern says that he wouldn't do that because of the whole Jedi code thing, and Friend says that he's not a Jedi, he can do what he wants. 
The clones wake up around the time the barge arrives at the main mining station. Mariah is waiting for them on the dock and she complains that they were gone for so long. Burn points out that she died and she ignores him. The group break through a droid base and get to a shuttle bay. While they're infiltrating, Mariah hacks computers and tells the group things that are happening in other parts of the base. Also, she gets shot and killed like three more times only to pop up completely fine a few minutes later. As the group is taking off in their stolen battle droid shuttle, the four-armed woman and the acrobats show up again. Sergeant Vim jumps out and stays behind to hold them off. The ship flies away and Vim is captured by the four-armed woman. She introduces herself as Gormanda and tells Vim that she's hunting Vivso, Hivs, Hivso because he stole a valuable artifact from her. Should have given him a pronounceable name. Like, haha, I'm gonna name him Hives because all the characters in the holiday special were named after malaria symptoms. <laughs> On the droid ship, Burn and the two remaining clones debate going back for Vim. Hivso tells them that they've wasted enough time already and need to get to Kashyyyk immediately. Burn asks why, and Hivso says, It's almost Life Day! An important Wookiee holiday that he needs to get home for. <laughs> Burn gets mad and demands that Hivso explain what's going on with the container and the assassins. Uh, Gab translates that the thing in the container is an Orb, a present for Hivso's son. Hivso growls at him and Gab corrects his translation. The orb will let him see his son, baby? Gab's not good at translation. Burn storms off after telling Gab and Topper to contact the Republic. Burn talks to Mermaya in the back of the ship, interrogating her about who she is and how she keeps, you know, dying and not dying. Mermaya acts coy. The door opens behind them and Topper fires his blaster at the duo. Burn dodges the shots, but Mermaya is hit in the arm. Burn kills Topper and storms into the cockpit. Gab puts his hands up and explains that Topper, after getting in contact with the Republic, suddenly stood up and went to kill Burn. They then play back the message that Topper heard. The time has come. Execute Order 66. Uh -oh. Burn points his lightsaber at Gab and asks what Order 66 is. Gab explains it. Do we need to explain it? It, it was in Revenge of the Sith. It's an order programmed into the clones via brain ship that makes them want to kill the Jedi. But Gab is immune to it because he's still recovering from a massive head wound. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> so the gang's in, gang's in a bit of a mess. They can't go to any place with the Republic or the Jedi because the clones will try to kill Burn. And they can't stay still because they realize that Gormanda and her men are tracking them because of an energy signal that Hivso's orb gives off. They decide to complete their mission and go to Kashyyyk, hoping that Master Yoda, the strongest of the Jedi, is still there and alive. Unfortunately, then they realize that Topper was the only one who knew how to fly the ship, so they're kind of just stuck in space now. That's unfortunate. It really is. <laughs> Burn explains that he knows a pilot who doesn't work for the Republic and sends out a distress call to them. While waiting for the pilot to arrive, Burn checks on Mermaya. She finds her repairing her arm with backup droid parts in part of the ship. As the two are talking... Mermaya's hologram glitches out, revealing her real form, a modified CIS battle droid. You see, Mermaya is an AI built to entertain the workers on Panama. Her f not Panama, that's real place. Panna, the mud planet. 
Her physical form is a droid using a hologram projector to pass as human. That's a boner killer. Each time she was almost destroyed, she transmitted her conscious over radio frequencies to a backup body on Panna. Burn is shocked to learn that she isn't alive, and Mermaya questions what that even means. Burn asks what Mermaya wants now, and she explains that she wants to leave Panna because it's boring, and now wants to live a real life. She decides to accompany the group to Kashyyyk because, hey, life day festivities. Hipso complains to Gab and Ferend about being stuck on a spaceship when he should be on Kashyyyk celebrating Life Day because it's the only time he gets to see his family. Gab discusses the fact that he is a clone and has complicated feelings about family, especially after watching Locke and Topper die. Ferend discusses the fact that the Jedi don't have families, saying that he pities Burn because, you know, there is strength in personal connections. Burn's friend shows up in a Chiss spaceship. The gang goes aboard and are introduced to Burn Jafazon, a young Chiss smuggler who happens to be Burn's sister. You see, Burn Kazukusar had trouble with the whole never see your family again thing and has been secretly contacting his family for years. It's also kind of implied that Burn Kazook's ability to fully dedicate himself to being a Jedi is the reason he's kind of a weakling loser. As Jafar Zone is flying the gang to Kashyyyk, they are attacked by a couple of clone ships. Jafar Zone outmaneuvers them by flying through an asteroid field, narrowly zigzagging around the asteroids. Ferend praises her flying skills and Jafar Zone explains that the Chiss possess an ability called the Sight that gives them better reaction time and makes them excellent pilots. Also, there's classic rock that plays during this scene because I couldn't figure out a way to make the Jefferson Starship music video fit into this plot line. I was going to say, I'm like, at the end of this, I was like, and how does the Jefferson Starship fit into I couldn't all of this? think of something. <laughs> that's, that's the most out of place thing in the movie. Of course. I mean, can you imagine classic rock playing during a Star Wars movie? I mean, I can. I've seen the Star Wars Holiday Special, and it sucked. But, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? So the gang land on Kashyyyk and find that the planet is now under control of the new galactic empire. Stormtroopers have begun enslaving the Wookiees and burning their forests to the ground. After an altercation with some stormtroopers, the gang are brought to an underground Wookiee resistance base owned by friends of Senator Hivso. Despite being forced into hiding, the Wookiees are still wearing their red Snuggies and celebrating Life Day. We finally get a proper explanation of what Life Day is. You know, unlike the holiday special, which never explains what the holiday's about, that the special's about. <laughs> Kashyyyk is not a planet covered in trees. It is a planet covered by tree. A single tree, the tree of life. Every tree is part of the same massive organism that covers all of Kashyyyk and protects the Wookiees. The life tree is connected to something the Wookiees call the life force that contains the souls of dead Wookiees. On life day, Wookiees are able to speak to their loved ones through the trees. This is especially important to Hivso because his son died in battle recently, and that's why he's all grumpy. Unfortunately, the tree of life is dying. 
It started dying during the droid invasion and only got worse after the stormtroopers began burning it to the ground. If the Tree of Life dies, Kashyyyk dies. Years ago, a seed from the tree was stolen by Garmanda and her mercenaries. And with Burns' help, Hivso has brought the seed back to Kashyyyk. It's the thing in the canister, which is a reference to both the orbs that the Wookiees walk into and the talisman from the cartoon. Anyway, the gang agreed to bring the orb seed talisman thing that Hivso has been lugging around to an ancient Wookiee temple to bury it. While they're planting the seed and Wookiee shamans are praying over it so it can take root, Gormanda's ship lands down the mountain. Sergeant Vim walks out, having killed Gormanda and stolen her ship so he could track down Burn. A dozen stormtrooper ships land next to Vim and begin marching up to the temple. The gang tries to hold them off long enough for the seed to take root. Friend, Jafarzan, Mermaya, Gab, and Hivso all die fighting, presumably in cool ways a la Rogue One that I didn't have time to come up for. I assume there's a climactic duel with Vim by one of them. Burn freaks out about everyone dying and taps into the dark side, using its strength to temporarily gain the upper hand. But still, there are just too many stormtroopers. One stormtrooper hits Burn in the side with a blaster bolt and he falls to his knees. Burn closes his eyes and begins meditating, whispering the same speech about the Force from the beginning. Then Burn realizes something. He finally understands what the Force is. One plant, many trees. One AI, many bodies. One face, many clones. One force, many people. The force is not just energy to be drawn upon. It is the living embodiment of, well, life. The force is life. It isn't good. It isn't bad. It just is. And despite what they think, the Jedi aren't the authority on it. They've only tapped into a small section of it, and by closing themselves off to life, they've limited what they can do with the Force. Also, Jedi aren't the under ones who understand what the Force are. Ashla, the Sight, the Life Force, different name for the same thing from different peoples. The Force is a universally understood concept, the power of life. Empowered by this revelation, Burn holds off the army long enough for the Wookiee Shaman to finish planting the seed. A pillar of light shoots from the temple to the stars. Circling it are spirits of hundreds of Wookiees, which come down and fight the stormtroopers. Among the spirits of the dead are those of Ferran, Gab, Jafarzan, Hivso, and even Mermaya, all now part of the living force. Burn collapses and dies, satisfied with his accomplishment. Admittedly, the Empire will be back, but Kashyyyk will be able to regrow when the new Tree of Life sprouts. The Jedi are dead, but the Force is alive, and someone, someday, will be able to use it for good. F-I-N. So that's Star Wars Holiday Special, if it was good, I guess. Dude, that was really good. Like we talked about earlier, it took me a little while to get an idea of what exactly it was uh, but when i realized it was this when you and especially when you told me that it was the holiday special the funny thing to me I, i'm assuming this is a bit more light-hearted of a take at times oh yeah is probably it? i didn't i assume there would be comedy stuff but i didn't write it in because this isn't writing a movie script that takes two hours to read it is making a quick <clears throat> 20 minute pitch that may have gone a bit over 20 minutes 
Yeah, because I don't know, when you made the analogy of planes, trains, and automobiles meets Star Wars, that for me was kind of like, okay, yeah, this is going to be something a bit more light. But that's really cool. For someone who is not particularly like a big Star Wars guy, as you said at the beginning of the episode, that fits really well within the entire lore, at least the lore that I understand. You know, what made this was while I was thinking, okay, how can I make the holiday special good? I realized... Hey, that really trippy ending with them walking in space and all the magic, that's probably the Force. What if Life Day and this big tree of theirs are part of the Force? And that leads me to, wait, hold on. There's got to be other views on the Force in Star Wars than this. And I did find that there are other names for the Force, and that kind of inspired, okay, the Force is this universal thing that's more than the Jedi. Right, exactly, yeah. That was what I was going to mention, the idea that, like, the Chiss are beings that have focused up their Force energy. The idea that Kashyyyk is just essentially one tree that's bound together by, like, the Force and stuff like that. Yeah, but, I mean, the Force isn't real, but there are entire forests in real life that are just one tree with a bunch of different branches and that's a really cool thing yeah and so you took that and made it like an entire planet which also is really cool yeah that fits really well into the lore of star wars it's a really interesting take it basically brings together all the different elements of the force and life and different species and beings and stuff and it basically makes it all one together which is basically what the message of the force is is it's like some people are stronger in it than others but we're all bound in it together every living thing and it, it's unifying and that's essentially what the theme of the force is also i really like the idea i mean as someone who recently was able to watch season seven of the clone wars and I watched a playthrough of Star Wars Fallen Order, because both of those take place. The Clone Wars ends with Order 66 happening. Fallen Order begins with Order 66 happening. And both of them are like these very serious, dramatic takes on what else was happening to the other Jedi during that time. And I just really like the idea that also happening this time is a good version of the fucking Star Wars holiday special. (laughs) I mean, you know why I did that? It's because... I needed to have Boba Fett being a friend and then turning evil. So, the clones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, don't get me wrong. I really like it. I just like the idea. I think it's so funny, the idea that Fallen Order, the kid loses everything in his life and loses his master and the clones try to kill him and stuff like that. Then in uh, the Clone Wars, Rex turns against Ahsoka and she has to find a way to save herself. And then in this, it's like, Hey, you evil? No, I have a giant head wound, so I'm good. You know, it's like how in Marvel, all the Avengers are fighting for their life against Thanos, and Hawkeye's just having the barbecue. He's retired. He's got to be with his family. Oh, please. That guy comes out of retirement more times than Jordan. (laughs) Sports reference. Anyway, from our limited discussion, I asked you what you were doing Just because, oh god, what if we both do the holiday special? And we didn't. But (laughs) no, thank you. From our brief conversation, you have an actual serious one and not, (laughs) it would be funny if I did the holiday special. But you know what? I think that's a good thing. You and I have very different visions of what 
our Star Wars story would be, and we're both pitching that, and I think that's good to see two different viewpoints. Yours, which is a bit more light, mine gets a bit dark at points, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, but um, there are some things that you mentioned, some themes and some plot points that my pitch goes into that yours kind of touched upon a little bit. Wait, one last thing. When you said that uh, Burn was the worst Jedi ever, I was reminded of Bailey Hoskins, the worst X-Man ever. Uh. So again, that was also a version of why I kind of pictured this early on as being like a more lighthearted story because it's like Bailey Hoskins is an X-Men member. He has the ability to explode. But he can only do it once because it will kill him. Yeah, and that's not the worst X-Men ever. I'm sorry, Bailey, but you have an ability you can't use. You're baseline human, essentially. There are mutants that have powers that basically kill them. Right. But that was one more thing I wanted to say. Uh, yeah, I, I like that. I really like that you went so in-depth into trying to make the Star Wars Holiday Special good and like bring back every single version of that you could possibly bring into it. And yeah, I really appreciated that. Overall, I really liked it. Yeah, I don't know. It's good that we're getting two different takes on uh, different Star Wars universe. And yeah, you and I had similar in some ways, but different in very, some very crucial ways. So yeah, overall, really liked your pitch. Uh, I thought it was a really well done, really good idea. And yeah, I like that you you obviously clearly put a lot of thought into it. And I remember you texted me yesterday saying like you had over a dozen Wikipedia tabs open up just to fact check your information and the pitches that you had. As someone, as you said, I actually, to be honest, I didn't know that you weren't the biggest Star Wars fan. I like Star Wars. I just, I'm not as into it or as knowledgeable as other people are, you know? Yeah, that's cool. That's totally fine. Anyway, Riley, pitch, hit me. Okay, so my film also takes place during the Clone War. And without further ado, let's get into Star Wars. Shattered Allegiance. Hmm. So we open up on a stormy, rocky planet on the Outer Rim called Uku. The planet is just miserable. It's completely made out of black rock. The oceans and the sky are almost as dark. It's constantly raining. There's thunder and lightning everywhere. It's just abysmal to live in. So we open up on sort of like a coastline of this planet Uku. On the shoreline, there's rain beating down on them, thunder and lightning everywhere. The oceans are crashing against the shore with 20-foot waves. It's just chaos out there. We cut to a group of about six of the planet's natives. They're humanoid, like elf-like creatures. There's six of them lined up in a straight line on the coast, and they're in chains surrounded by clone troopers and four Jedi Knights. The biggest of the Jedi, he walks towards the prisoners, the natives to the planet, and takes off his hood to reveal that he is a Bothan. He's basically a alien with a bit more canine features. There's two masters and two Padawans. The one master is a Bothan, the other master is a Quarren. A Quarren is a, like a squid person. Okay. And of the Padawans, one of them is an Iridonian Zabrak, similar to the Jedi Master Eeth Koth, and the other Padawan is a Rodian, which is basically Greedo. So the Bothan Master walks up to the line of prisoners chained up on the shore, surrounded by clones with guns to them, and he proclaims, In the name of the Galactic Senate and the Republic, 
I sentence you to death for treachery. He sparks up his lightsaber and in one fail swoop decapitates all the prisoners. Little context to this story. Uku has no significance to the Republic whatsoever. There's no resources, there's no tactical advantage they can gain from it. There's really no point in them having it. However, there is a base on there that belongs to the Separatists. Now, as I said, this takes place during the Clone Wars, and the Jedi and the Republic are basically trying to gain whatever footing they can against the Separatists at this point. They sent the Quarren and the Bothan Master to basically go take this base and take this planet just for the sole purpose of taking it away from the Separatists. There's no benefit to be made from the Republic owning it. All they're doing is taking away from the Separatists. The Jedi in question that are doing this are under heavy suspicion by the Jedi Council and are not trusted because they sense something wrong with them. There's something incorrect. They don't believe that they're the best Jedi they can be, so they're actually at one point considering expelling them. However, after a series of incredible military victories, the Republic is keeping these Jedi and their Padawans and their battalion because they're just, in terms of military, they're great at winning battles and winning war. Because the Jedi don't totally trust the Jedi, but the Republic needs them, they basically compromise and say, hey, we need you to go attack this heavily fortified base. So the Jedi and their Padawans and the battalion, the army, they get there, and after some time of attacking, all communications have just ended. Like, the Jedi and the Republic cannot get into contact with the Jedi uh, on the planet, Uku. But they basically decide that after the Bothan and the Korin have established that they are very capable in a military situation, they trust them, added to the fact that the Jedi and the Republic are already spread way too thin among the galaxy, and because it's not too big of a priority, they're going to trust that on Uku, the mission is being accomplished. So as far as the Jedi and the Republic are concerned, the battle still wages on on Uku. The problem is that that's not the case. The communications were purposefully taken down by the Jedi. If you're familiar with the film Apocalypse Now, the villain in that film, Colonel Kurtz, basically during Vietnam, took himself and his troops deep within the Vietnamese jungle, found like a tribe in the area, and basically just took over as dictator and are subjugating the people and forcing them to worship him as a deity. And that's exactly what the Jedi, the Quarren and the Bothan, are doing to Uku and the natives. They've given in to the temptation of their powers, they've given in to their greed, and they're subjugating the natives, imprisoning, torturing, murdering them, and are basically just reaping and relishing the spoils of war as the dictators of Uku, free from the responsibilities of the Jedi and out of the eye of the Republic. So, clearly, these Jedi are not good Jedi. They're not good people. And they're the dictators of this planet. As I mentioned, the Jedi Council did not trust these two Jedi Knights. But because the Republic needed them, they compromised and said, all right, we'll keep them there, but we'll basically keep them at a distance, essentially. So that's the context of what they're happening. Also, the natives were fiercely, fiercely loyal to the Separatists. That's why the clones are going along with it, is because A, their Jedi Masters told them to, and B, they're doing this to their enemies. It's okay. That's how they're able to justify it. 
Back to the story. Once the Jedi and the clones make it back to the palace, the Jedi walk back to the dining hall where there's a feast waiting for them. And the Jedi Knights, the Quarren and the Bothan, they begin dining, enjoying their lives. They're talking about their conquests, their victories in battle, all their plans for the future, all that. Meanwhile, the Padawans are not eating or speaking at all. When the Bothan Master executed the prisoners, the Quarren Master, he smirked, but the Padawans stared emotionless. They are showing no emotion during any of this. They are not eating at all, and the Masters take notice and begin to command them to eat. The Padawans, for some reason, cannot eat. And once the Masters start to become enraged, out of nowhere, there are two massive explosions, each on an opposite end of the palace. The natives have had enough of the Jedi's occupation. They've stormed the barracks and the armory, and they've stolen back all the weapons that the Separatists gave them, and are forming a direct assault on two fronts of the palace, revolting against the Jedi. Each Jedi takes a bunch of their clones and their Padawan and takes them to opposite directions of the palace to deal with the battle on each side. The Bothan takes his Zabrak apprentice to one side, whereas the Quarren takes his Rodian apprentice to the other side. The Quarren master and the Rodian apprentice begin to battle. The enemy is enclosing on them. There's explosions. There's fire coming from all directions, everywhere they go. It's just pure chaos. The apprentice looks around. All he sees is laser blasts coming from all directions. Everywhere he looks, there's a clone dropping like that. Just shot, murdered, dead, everywhere. There's just pure destruction and death everywhere he looks. And then the Quarren grabs him by the chest, tells him to focus. Just then, a rocket launcher is shot, blowing up right in front of the two of them, knocking them several feet back. The apprentice wakes up, gets back to his feet, and sees his master dead on the ground in front of him. The apprentice grabs his lightsaber, sparks it up with the intent on continuing the battle, but he stops. He looks at his lightsaber, he looks back at the battle in front of him, and then he sheathes his lightsaber, turns around, and runs. He doesn't know where he's going. All he knows is this is his chance. This is his chance to escape. The Rodian apprentice is named Hawk Ayo, and he, like I said, doesn't know where he's going. He's just running away. On the other side of the palace, the Bothan and the Zabrak are continuing the battle on their end, but on that end, the enemy is much closer, and now they're having like one-on-one -on -one fights with a lot of the enemies. Now, at one point, the Bothan Master rushes at one of the natives coming at him. He cuts his gun, he destroys his weapon, knocks the native to the ground, and stands over him. The Jedi is standing over an unarmed man, an unarmed Separatist, but an unarmed man. He lifts up his lightsaber, ready to strike, but before he can throw it down to kill the man, his apprentice stabs him in the back with his lightsaber. Many Bothans were stabbed in the back with lightsabers to give us this film. Thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> Thank you very much. The Zabrak apprentice kills his Bothan master. The Zabrak apprentice is named Saksu Tevad, and he has just killed his master in order to save a separatist. He helps the native back to his feet, and the native stares at him in confusion. At that moment... Hawk runs to the balcony above where they're standing, and he shouts, Saxu! And then just as that happens, another 
crazy onslaught of explosions and firepower comes down upon them. An explosion knocks Saksu to the ground, knocks his double-ended blue lightsaber out of his hands, and in the ensuing chaos, he's trying to find his double-ended blue lightsaber, but he can't. In a split second, all he sees is his master's lightsaber, so he force grabs that, sparks it up, and begins just blocking all the firepower trying to defend himself. At a point, he realizes that retreat is the only option, and he jumps back up onto the balcony and runs away. However, a wounded clone hiding behind a rock witnessed every single thing that Saksu did, and as they run away, the clone screams, TRAITOR! Hawk and Saksu run through the palace. Hawk asks, where are we going? What, what, what are we going to do? And Saksu says, follow me. And they run through the palace until they get to the loading dock, the ship port or wherever. They get to the loading dock where a bunch of the clone's gunships are there waiting. They jump into one of the gunships, fire it up, and lift off. And as they fly away, that's when the natives have stormed the palace and begin shooting at them before they can escape. And one of the natives takes his rocket launcher and shoots it at the gunship, and it hits them. It destroys their hyperspeed engine. But they're fine, they make it to space, and they're safe. The masters are killed, all the clones are dead, the natives, who are separatists, have taken back the planet of Uku. Once in space, Saksu and Hawk talk about what the hell they're going to do. Or Hawk asks, what are we going to do? We, we have nowhere to go. The Jedi won't take us back. Like... What, what do we do? Do we go back to Coruscant? And Saksu says, no, we can't go back. Our hyperspace is damaged. We only have enough juice to go to the nearest system, or else we're going to lose power and explode and all that, and we're going to die in hyperspeed. We have to go to the nearest system to find a ship to get us back home to Coruscant. So the two take it to hyperspace, to the nearest system. Once they come out of hyperspace, their engine blows, and the two begin hurtling into orbit, and the jungle planet Asuliar. Asuliar is, again, in the Outer Rim. It's a popular-ish trading port with a lot of piracy, a lot of scum, a lot of villainy, a lot of just, you know, not good characters. It's not a place for a Jedi. But they crash land, and thankfully, they make it out alive. They walk into town, or they walk into the market, where they're trading spice, they're trading slaves, they're trading weapons and all that. And they look for someone to give them a ride. They happen upon a band of pirates who are incidentally working for the Clone Wars character Hondo. But that's kind of irrelevant to the story. That's just a fun little Easter egg because I like Hondo as a character. I think he's hilarious. But they begin talking with the pirates and ask them if they could hitch a ride with them off-world. The pirates basically say no, unless you got the credits to pay us. The Padawans pull out all the money they can, which is just a few credits. The pirates say, are you kidding me? They laugh them off, like, are you kidding me? That's not gonna work. The Padawans do their mind control, or their, they, they do their convincing powers, and they say, you will take us off-planet for this amount of credits. And they go, Alright, yeah, sure. And the pirates tell them that they're leaving the planet at dawn the next day. So you better meet us by then, and we will take you off this planet. Saksu and Hawk walk around the market, and they find an alleyway to just spend the night. Because they have no money, nowhere to go, nothing. And they do not talk about what just happened to them. They're completely silent towards one another. Cut to the next day, at dawn. Saksu and Hawk wake up, but they feel something different. 
there's a presence on this planet that wasn't there when they went to bed. They decide, whatever, we're going to get off this planet in a little bit soon anyway, so let's just meet up with the pirates. And as they walk through the market, out of nowhere, a masked Jedi Sentinel leaps out and attacks them. The Jedi Sentinel has a yellow lightsaber pike, which means the grip of the lightsaber is much longer and the blade is a bit shorter. The Sentinel is an incredibly gifted assassin named Kalor Galden. And Kalor was sent here by the Jedi Council. You see, what Saxu and Hawk did not realize is that as they were fleeing the planet Uku, and as the natives were taking over the palace, the clone that called out for Saxu and called him a traitor on the battlefield was able to run into the palace, get to the communication tower, turn the communications back on, and send a message to the Jedi Order and to the Republic saying that the Padawans betrayed their masters and killed them. They're now separatists, they're defectors, they're deserters, they're Sith Lords, and they are escaping the planet now, basically telling the Jedi his side of the story. The transmission ends with the natives storming into the communications room and killing the clone. So as far as the Jedi and the Republic are concerned, Saxu Tavad and Hak Ayo are Sith Lords, deserters, defectors, and they need to be ended. They need to be stopped because they are traitors. Kalor Galden, as a Jedi Sentinel, is sent on a bunch of Black Ops missions of assassinations, stuff like that. The stuff that the Jedi Order don't typically want to talk about, but that needs to get done anyway. Kalor was, was sort of in the area, within a distance. That's why Kalor was able to get there fairly quickly. Hawk begins to beg Kalor to listen to him. He's saying, look, we were not, we didn't mean, none of that happened. No, we didn't. We didn't kill our masters. We didn't portray the Republic. We, we were just, we lost the battle. But Kalor is not having any of it. And Kalor continues the attack on them, and they fight. Despite the fact that there are two of them, they are completely outmatched for Kalor. Yet despite that, the Padawans are able to distract Kalor and escape, get to the pirate ship, which flies away. So after their attack, Saxu and Hawk are perfectly fine. They get away. Then as the, the pirate ship flies away, Kalor watches. Cut to the pirate ship. Hawk and Saxu are being shown their quarters by one of the pirates. And once they get there, the pirate asks them a series of questions like, What the hell are Jedi doing needing a pirate's help? Why are you being attacked by your Jedi? What are you on the run for? Like, you guys are supposed to be, like, royalty, essentially. You're the greatest, most wholesome, whatever, people in the world. To which the Padawans tell him that everything he believes and has been told about the Jedi Order is wrong. They're not harbingers of peace. They're not soldiers that fight for justice. They're pawns to a corrupt government. How they themselves, Hawk and Saxu, were infants, ripped from their homes, brainwashed into becoming child soldiers, inducted into a cult, and groomed to become generals of a slave army. They tell him about all the misdeeds, about how their masters would torture them into submission, into becoming better Jedi, into teaching them a lesson, or just even for amusement, because their masters were terrible people, but the Jedi Order, the Jedi Council, refused to do anything about it, because the Republic said, well, they're very valuable to us to continue this war, so you're going to keep them around. Hawk and Saxu are victims of a system that didn't care about them. 
the Jedi Order doesn't care. The Jedi Order has lost its way. It doesn't care about justice, love, freedom. All it cares about is continuing the ideals of the Republic, a corrupt government that takes money and resources more than human lives. So they have that conversation with the pirate. Really what this story is about from then on is essentially Saxu and Hawk are hitchhiking across the galaxy. They visit a bunch of systems, a bunch of planets, and they see firsthand just the horrors of war and how the Clone War is affecting people throughout the galaxy in so many different ways. They run to a system with a very prominent city, but when they come to the city, it's a giant crater in the ground. Beautiful civilization and culture just destroyed by the Clone Wars. They get to another planet where they see just villages on fire, dead bodies everywhere. Just the wake of this war, taking lives, destroying homes, ending cultures and civilizations. They witness firsthand the deplorable, inhumane conditions of a refugee camp of the people that are basically subjugated because they're not from this system. They're seeking refuge from their planet that was destroyed by war. All the while, they're hitchhiking and seeing these horrors. Hawk and Saxu are having an existential crisis about their place in life, their meanings, them as a Jedi, their fate. They struggle with the idea of them being Force-sensitive. Is that a gift or a curse? Like, what does it mean to be a force wielder, to be a Jedi? Are the Jedi even good? Do they stand for what's good? Do they stand for what's right? Are the Sith right? Like, what right do the Jedi have to say that they're the ones that are good? They're the good guys. Hawk struggles with the idea of what it means to be a Jedi. Because this is what he knows. He's known his entire life that the Jedi are good. They fight for what's right. Or at least they, they, that's what they tell everybody. They claim to fight for love and freedom. And yes, they're a little misguided now, but he has to keep hope that the world, that the universe, that the Jedi, at the end of the day, are going to do what is right. So he's holding on to this hope that he's going to be able to explain to the Jedi Order what happened and he will be forgiven and he can help usher in a new era, end the Clone Wars, end hate, end the Sith, reform the Jedi, and he can be a part of the change. So Hawk is holding on to hope that he as a Jedi means something. Saxu, on the other hand, struggles with himself as a Force wielder and as someone being tempted by the dark side. Because when the two of them were growing up, Saxu essentially took the blunt of the torture that their masters had for them. And when I mean torture, I mean physically, psychologically, and spiritually, all that. He's just a victim of this entire circumstance. He's seen the horrors of war. He's been groomed and brainwashed to be a child soldier. He was tortured by his master. He's been betrayed by the government that he's supposed to be fighting for. He has no faith anymore in the Jedi. But he also does, he doesn't have faith in anything. He just believes in nothing. And because of that, he's feeding into his negative emotions, his fear, his hate, and he's struggling with, I've been taught my entire life that that is evil, that that is wrong. But those same people are the ones that never cared about me. Beyond that, not only do they not care about me, but they tortured me. They turned me into this person whom I hate. Hawk is struggling with the Jedi. Saxu is struggling with the Force and what it means to be that, and what his fate is going to be, what his decisions are, and how he needs to make the right decision. Eventually, they're on a ship, they're in the cargo hold, 
and basically Saksu stares down at the lightsaber at his hip. He takes it out and holds it in his hand. It's not his lightsaber, it's his master's. And he's staring at the lightsaber that his master would use to torture him. And for the sake of being PG-13, I won't go too in-depth in how exactly that torture occurred and what that was. So he's staring down at this lightsaber, the tool of his abuse and the tool of his torture. And he decides, I cannot keep looking at this thing. If my life is going to depend on my weapon, I can't let it be the one that destroyed me. He decides that he's going to reforge the lightsaber to look completely different, but also fit more of his style, because that's the thing. Jedi, the Force helps them build their lightsaber to fit their fighting style and the Force and all that. So he begins meditating. He sits down on the ground, begins meditating, and through the Force, completely disassembles his master's lightsaber. And through a bunch of the parts of the lightsaber and a bunch of parts in the cargo hold, he begins reforging a new lightsaber that better fits him, his style, him as an individual, basically going about the process of making a lightsaber via the Force. But while he's doing that, while he's meditating, he begins remembering all the years of torture and hate and anger and fear that were instilled upon him in order to turn him into the brainwashed cult member that he is today. And he imbues the lightsaber's kyber crystal with all of this fear and hate and anger. And he corrupts it. So when he forges the lightsaber back together, he takes it in his hand and he sparks it up. The light of the saber is not blue that was typical to him or his master. When he ignites his lightsaber, a deep blood red light fills the entire room. He has corrupted his master's crystal and turned it into a dark side saber. And now he has a red lightsaber, symbolic of how he has fallen deeper and deeper into that of the dark side. Hawk stands back out of caution. He grabs for his lightsaber at his hip and says, You can't give in to fear, Saksu. Essentially, like, giving him this whole speech about how he can't allow himself to fall prey to the dark side. He still has to have hope. And at this point, the two begin to have a battle of ideologies. As I mentioned, Hawk still has hope, whereas Saksu has none left. The two argue. Hawk is like, you can't allow yourself to fall into the dark side. Saxu is like, well, what other choice do we have? The Jedi are evil. And Hawk says, well, the Sith are evil too. And then Saxu is basically like, you don't know what I am. You don't know what I've been through. I'm not a dark side. I'm not a Sith. I'm not whatever. The basic teenage, like, you don't know me. Whatever. And then Hawk tells him, yes, I do. I know exactly who you are. I saw you kill your master on Uku. I know the evil deeds that you've done, and as far as I'm concerned, you are a Sith to me. And Hawk ignites his lightsaber, and the two are about to fight, when suddenly their ship is blasted. It's Kalor again. Kalor tracked them down and is now attacking their ship. The ship gets caught in orbit of a new planet called Kretha, which is a dusty, cliffy planet. If you've seen the film Lone Survivor, which takes place in Afghanistan, basically it's a lot like the Afghanistan wilderness, only the cliffs are a lot bigger. The ship crash lands onto the surface of Kretha. None of the crew survive. Well, the crew is all droids. Let's say that. <laughs> the, the, all the droid crew were destroyed, but the Padawans made it out alive. As they escape from the wreckage, Kalor's ship lands in front of them. And when Kalor gets out, Kalor confronts them. To which Hawk, again, tries one last time. Please, believe us. I didn't do that. I did not kill my master. We are not separatists. Don't, don't do this. 
but Kalor again refuses to listen to them. And then in a last-ditch effort, Hawk begs Kalor to take him as prisoner so that he can go to the Jedi Temple and plead his case to the Jedi Order and tell his truth. But Kalor refuses and tells them that it has orders to kill them because they're traitors, they're Sith, and they need to be stopped. And then Hawk gets back up on his feet and seeing that he has no other option left, he and Saxu must fight and put an end to Kalor if they are going to survive. But before they begin fighting, Kalor lifts up its arm and shows Saxu a double-ended lightsaber. Kalor was able to grab Saxu's double-ended blue lightsaber that he dropped on Uku. And Kalor throws it to him and says, It's yours. Better make it a fair fight. Kalor ignites its lightsaber. Hawk, just out of sheer desperation, with no other end in sight, ignites his green lightsaber. And Saxu ignites his new red lightsaber and ignites his old double-ended blue lightsaber, but one end isn't working. And the three begin to fight. Pretty soon after their fight begins, Kalor is able to knock Saxu off the cliffside into a village below. One thing I forgot to mention, down on the ridge that Saxu just fell onto, there is a war happening. The clones and the droids are attacking each other in the middle of that village. Like, the village is in the middle of No Man's Land. Kalor knocks Saxu down into the village, throwing him into No Man's Land. And Kalor continues its fight with Hawk. Saxu gets up, tries to look for a way to get back onto the ridge to continue the fight to end Kalor once and for all, but he stops because he hears a cry in the village. He turns around to see a little girl, a little alien girl, alone in the middle of a battlefield, crying for help. Without even thinking, he doesn't even know why, Saxu runs in the middle of the village, under heavy fire, grabs the little girl, and tries to save her life. Like I said, it's just a split-second reaction. He doesn't know why. As he's running through the village, trying to dodge the fire, trying to keep the girl alive, the girl points towards a nearby cave, and Saxu runs with her in his arms, and runs into the cave where he finds the little girl's family. A couple adults, a bunch of kids, they were the natives to this village. But once the battle began, they were unable to escape the village and are now pinned down, and presumably, with the droid army and the clone army closing in, they're probably going to be overrun and killed. If not by the droids, then by accident. The problem is, Saxu tries talking with them, but he doesn't really know their language. He can kind of pick up a little bit on what they're saying, but he can't speak to them. But the words he can gather are that they have a speeder on the other ridge, and if they can get there, then the family will survive. Now, Saxu got a game-time decision to make. In order to free himself, Saxu knows that he has to go back onto the ridge above and help Hawk end Kalor once and for all in order to free himself. Or he can do what he can to help this family. He stands and he contemplates on what exactly to do. He knows that in order to free himself, he has to continue the fight on top of the ridge. But then he looks down at the little girl that he just saved. And he decides, this isn't about me. I have to save this little girl and this family. He's able to tell the family, like, look, I'm going to escort you across No Man's Land to try to help you get to your speeder. He takes the double-ended lightsaber, he detaches the broken end from it, and replaces it with the new lightsaber. He ignites both ends of his lightsaber at the same time. One end blue, the other end red. 
Saksu Tavad is no longer a Jedi, but nor is he a Sith. He is an agent of the Force, and he will do whatever he can to do what's right. He is not bound by government nor creed. He is not bound to the will of anything. He serves only justice and good by doing it his own way. And justice, his way, is helping this family get to their speeder to escape. So he convinces the family, follow me, I'm going to protect you in the battlefield. They rush out of the cave into no man's land with heavy fire upon both sides of them. Meanwhile, Hawk and Kalor continue fighting. Hawk continues to beg Kalor to stop, but Kalor refuses and begins antagonizing him, just trying to get him off his game. Back down in no man's land, the family takes cover and debris and houses and wherever else they can, while Saxu defends them from the blaster fire. The droids on one end see, hey, that's a Jedi, blast him. The clones on the other end see, hey, that's the traitor, blast him. So now, a lot of their fire is being focused on Saxu. And Saxu, he's doing his best. He's blasting, he's defending himself, he's defending the family from blaster fire until he gets hit in the shoulder and hit in the leg, and he's knocked to the ground. He's got blaster fire all over him, he's shot, he's injured, but then he looks over at the family in front of him. They're ducking, they're just barely keeping themselves alive. If they were to look up for one second, they'd be dead. And through sheer willpower, Saksu pulls himself up and continues the fight. He, he ignites his lightsaber, and he keeps deflecting the blaster fire as best he can. He's keeping them away from the family as best he can, but in the process, he's getting himself shot. He's getting blasted in his other shoulder. He gets blasted in the abdomen. He's just taking shots, but he's keeping the family safe. And on the other end, once they reach the forest on the other side of the ridge, he tells the family, I'm going to distract the clones. Basically, they're closer to the clones than they are to the droids. He says, I'm going to distract the clones from uh, attacking you, climb down this ridge, get to your speeder, I'm gonna pull them away from you. So Saksu, he draws the clone's fire away from the family. He's running through this forest. He's defending himself, he's injured, he's been shot a number of times. He runs through the forest until he reaches the end of it. And at the end of it, there's just another ridge, another cliff. There's a lot of cliffs on this planet. The clones close in on him and he has nowhere to go. He's at the end of his rope, he's injured. He's at, literally at, backed up to the end of a cliff. It's too far to jump down. The clones have cornered him. A number of clones blast him again until he's knocked to his knees and the lightsaber is torn from his hands. Saksu lies on the ground. He's in pain. He knows he's gonna die and the clones are gonna kill him. He crawls over to the ridge, gets up and sits on his knees and he stares out into the canyon below. The sun is setting, and he thinks to himself, what a beautiful world. Just pure, natural, pristine beauty. And then out of the corner of his eye, he sees a little speck of dust in the valley, in the canyon. It's the family. They made it to their speeder. They're safe. They made it. He saved this family. He served his purpose. He won this battle. And while looking out at the canyon, the sun setting, the family that he just saved getting away, he smiles as the clone commander orders, fire! And the clones open fire, ending the life of Saksu Tavad. Oh man. <laughs> Meanwhile, back on the top ridge, Hawk and Kalor continue their battle. Kalor continues to antagonize Hawk, 
who finally snaps. He's at the end of his rope. He's been betrayed. He's, he's held out so much hope despite all the pain and anguish that he's suffered at the hands of the Jedi and his masters and the, the system, the Republic, all that. He has still held out hope and given them the benefit of the doubt. And they have continuously continuously betrayed him. And now they've sent an assassin to be judge, jury, and executioner on him for the purpose of ending his life? No. Fuck that. Hawk becomes enraged. He begins channeling his anger, his hate. He knocks the lightsaber out of Kalor's hands, slices Kalor across the face, and knocks Kalor to the ground. Hawk stands over Kalor, ready to strike. And as he's in this position, Kalor, an unarmed warrior on the ground, him standing over Kalor with his lightsaber, he remembers the position that Saxu's master, the Bothan, had over the native. And he remembers witnessing Saxu kill his master. And deep down, he really thought he deserved that. Not just for all the stuff he's done to me, but the fact that he's about to kill an unarmed prisoner. That's not the Jedi way. That goes against everything he's strived to believe. And then at that second, Kalor turns around to look at Hawk to reveal that the mask Kalor was wearing was sliced off. Kalor turns to look at Hawk to reveal the face of a human woman staring up back at him. Hawk hesitates, and then he lowers his lightsaber. He sheathes it and proclaims, no, this is not the Jedi way. I still believe he is not going to kill Kalor. He is a Jedi through and through. He believes in the Order and he still believes that he can do good, even if that means his own death. And then in one fail swoop, Kalor force grabs her lightsaber, gets up, and slices Hawk's abdomen. Kalor fucking sucks. <laughs> Hawk stands there in disbelief. He gasps. <gasps> he turns to look at Kalor and he collapses to the ground. And thus ends the life of Hawk Ayo. From there, we cut to Coruscant, where Kalor Galden gives her report to Jedi Master Yoda and Mace Windu, telling them what happened, how the mission was a success, basically telling them everything that she perceived to have happened. To which Windu and Yoda tell her that she must never speak of this to anyone. If word gets out that Jedi are turning evil, it would sow mistrust in the Republic and the Jedi Order. And they dismiss Kalor after telling her, don't speak of this. This isn't important. This, this never meant anything. It's just two kids betraying the Jedi Order. It, it, it doesn't mean anything. And don't tell anyone. And as Kalor walks out of the room, she stops and something inside her doesn't feel right. Completely burying this story, this secret, just doesn't totally sit right with her for a second. For a moment. For a moment she realizes that this might not be right. But then she turns around and walks back to her quarters, and the door closes from the Jedi Council Room. The end. Huh. First off, I do like that you are portraying the Clone War as, well, war as hell. You brought up Apocalypse Now, and I do think that's a bit of a failing of Star Wars with the, oh, it, it's just robots versus clones. It's not a real war. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. Right. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting, the idea of a pair of Jedi becoming evil because they're just dicks. Like, not, oh, I must save my dying wife. No, it's just, they're selfish dickholes. Right, yeah. I'm not sure how I feel about Jedi torturing Padawans or Cowher being... Cowher fucking sucks. Yeah. I'm glad she got Order 66. She did, actually. That is that is a, a bit of backstory. After the fact, she would die in Order 66. Good, because she fucking sucks. Yeah, 
Yeah. Although I will say the part of this that makes it work, the best part is the ending with the conclusions of both of the protagonists arcs i like protecting this family through a battlefield taking all the blaster fire and i like forgiving an opponent and refusing to strike down someone unarmed because it's the jedi way these are two good jedi and that's what makes this pitch kind of work is there anything out of curiosity that doesn't work you think i mean keep in mind i had a week you mentioned oh i don't you mentioned that you wrote yours down like two hours ago only half of mine is written down right in front of me to be perfectly honest with you <laughs> we're professionals i don't know i kind of feel in the series the jedi's main failure is incompetence and obsession with tradition more than sadism yeah i mean that uh, yeah i can see that I tried alluding to the idea that it was more than just physical. It was like psychological because these two Jedi are just dicks. They're about to be expelled by the Jedi Order. But yeah, that, I, I agree. I do agree. That's a little far. Although to be fair, you did touch on a bit and I also touched on the Jedi kind of suck in the prequels. Yeah, yeah. They're just taking children and indoctrinating them yeah. and not allowed to have loved ones. That kind of sucks. And also, I'm pretty sure it's supposed to suck yeah. because the Star Wars movies have, like after all the Jedi are dead, have these scenes where there are great moments of selflessness motivated by love and the Jedi don't like that. Right, exactly. That was one of the things that was a great idea that the prequels brought up, but just wasn't so well executed. The idea that it reframes your understanding of what the Jedi are. Because in the original trilogy, you're taught, oh, the Jedi, they fight for love and equality and freedom and all that. But then in the prequels, it's like, no, they've completely lost their way. They're just, like I mentioned, pawns to a corrupt government. And it reframes your thinking of that, like, oh, shit, the, the beings that are meant to be pure good, they're kind of assholes in this. And that was one of the things that an idea that was really well, at least in conception, brought up in the prequels. It's just so happens that George Lucas is not the greatest writer or director, so it didn't come through as well. But that was one of the things that I wanted to explore much more. Also, the idea of how red lightsabers are created. I thought that that was fascinating. The idea that the Jedi Order, even Yoda and Mace Windu are like, yeah, some really bad shit happens and they just let it happen. I believe it was uh, Count Dooku in the Extended Universe who basically said, like, the Jedi Order is irredeemable at this point. If Yoda has been the Grand Master of the Jedi for hundreds, hundreds of years, if he genuinely wanted to do good, he would have done something about it by now. But he hasn't, which means that there is no saving him. That's part of his motivation. Uh, si speaking of that, one of my original ideas was the film would open up and end with Yoda on Dagobah basically looking back and thinking about all of his failures in the Jedi Order. And this would be one of them. But then I thought that that was a little too convoluted. I just resorted to Yoda and Mace Windu having cameos. Hmm. Fuck up. I did. <laughs> Ruin everything. I did. I couldn't even stop Palpatine. You know, I need to rewatch the prequels sometime. I haven't seen them since I was 15. Yeah, we should review those soon. We should start reviewing Star Wars soon. I'm sure you're familiar with the website Fantasy Name Generator. I would just like to say for the record that that website is a lot more awesome than I thought it was. Holy shit. Like, not only 
can you type in Star Wars names? Like, just generate a name from the Star Wars. You can look up individual species of alien within Star Wars. I also use fancy name yeah, generators. I, I had no idea. I didn't get these names from, like, a single generation. I looked, took, oh, that's a cool first name. Uh, generate, oh, that's a cool last name. Put them together. That's what I did for my names. But I would just like to state, for the record, I looked up, like, Star Wars Rodian name generator. And there was a, sh there was a page that generated a bunch of names specifically for the Rodian species. I did the same for the Zabrak. I did the same for planets. I'm like, holy shit, I had no idea it went this in-depth with this website. Like, damn, that's really cool. That's a lot cooler than I thought it was going to be. Just throwing that out there. That was a thought I had. I'm like, god damn, this is awesome. <laughs> By the way, for the audience listening to this, and maybe Riley, I don't know if he can hear me. My internet just went out and Riley sounds super fucking distorted. I have no clue what he is saying right now. I'm just getting bits and pieces. The point of my story was to just bring up a lot of the topics that I feel like the prequels tried to bring up but just weren't so successful at asking. Like, a lot of questions and themes that episodes 1, 2, and 3 tried to ask, but didn't ask so well, you know? Didn't shine through as well. So that was the point of my story, was to just ask the questions that the prequels tried to ask. Also, I really wanted to have a story where a double-ended red and blue lightsaber <laughs> just really wanted to do that somehow, incorporate that. So, uh, yeah. Um, I think that's about it for me. Uh, Casey, do you have anything? Hello? God damn it. Uh, and? Great, my phone I was talking to him on just died. That's all, that's awesome. That's fun, that's cool. So I'm gonna end this episode now, I guess. <laughs> well, professionalism. This is why you don't do hour you don't do two hour you don't do two hour long episodes this this is what happens uh hold on i'm going to message him with my laptop <laughs> oh boy we are professionals at this oh i'll have to edit this together interestingly you know next week it's our 25th episode big thing we're doing a film that we've wanted to do since the start, uh, Avatar The Last Airbender's movie, which is not great. And we're gonna have a guest on it, and I'm sorry that this one ended really weirdly, assuming he doesn't say, because it's just me now. Uh, you can find Riley at the places. I'll steal the audio from another episode if he doesn't say it. You can all find me on YouTube at Riley Thorpe, where you can check out all of my short films and video essays. Check out my short film, Silence of the Karens, that recently just got accepted into a film festival, so more updates on that as it comes. Thank you. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at Riley James Thorpe, all one word. My name's Casey Jarms. You can find my work at caseyjarms.wordpress.com. You can follow me on Twitter at JarmsCasey, J-A-R-M-E-S-C-A-S-E-Y. Next week, as I said, we're doing Avatar The Last Airbender movie, assuming we don't 
have more technical issues and I'm not forced to do the episode's ending again. As always, I'm Casey Charms. He was Riley Thorpe. He's gone now. It's just me. And hey, it's just a movie. Don't lose your head about it. Especially not to a ladder. At least, at least he got his pitch done. Oh, fuck this episode. Ah, oh, goodbye.